0: Thank you so much, Pastor John. And uh, it's uh, a privilege to be with you here this morning. And I bring greetings from your sister church in New Westminster, a Fellowship Baptist Church, and a like Bible believing, Bible preaching church. And uh, it is always such a privilege to see the Word of God um, just in in everything that we do uh, in the in the service this morning, in the hymns, uh, everything that is spoken. And uh, I trust that the Lord will grant blessing to both the reading and the understanding of, uh, of his word this morning. Would you please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 30? And I want to read a good portion of the chapter for our scripture reading. Please stand. We're going to be beginning at verse 8. Hear now the very words of the Lord. And now go. Go. Write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, Leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dig up water out of the cistern. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away, and we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself any more. but your eyes shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be Be gone. And he will give them rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread to the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been widowed with shovel and fork. And on every high, sorry, on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Behold, the nature of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with a sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept and gladness of heart as when one sets out to to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstorms. The Assyrians will be terror stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. Battling with brandished arm, he will fight for them. For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king, it is made ready. Its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. This is the very word of God. Let us fear and obey. You may be seated. Would you please join me in prayer as we look to the Lord and ask him to bless this time, hearing from him and and having his words applied to our hearts. Lord God in heaven, we come to you who are to be feared. We thank you that as much as the fear of God may be in our hearts that we see the fear of the Lord, in fact, Father, and your Son, who, though he was very God of very God, the exact imprint of your nature, the image of the invisible, the radiance of his glory that yet he became as a servant and as one of us. And he obeyed. He obeyed and became obedient even to death, death on a cross. And therefore, Father, you've exalted him. Therefore, every knee will bow. And so, Lord, we want to bow the knee to Christ this morning in our hearts and in hearing. We thank you for this word, which we will not much touch on this morning, but this this little word that we will see our teacher and we will hear the words behind us. This is the way walk in it. And so, Lord, we, we lay hold of this promise this morning as we, we look into the rest later, later on into this chapter and what it says about judgment and how we ought to view it and appreciate your judgment, oh God. As we see wickedness around us, we pray for the repentance of the nations, but Lord, we thank you that for those who are fully and finally set in opposition to you in their sins, Lord, that there will be justice. We thank you that for those who even have persecuted and and, and beaten to death your saints, as we heard this morning, that there will be justice. So Lord, help us to understand. Help us to delight ourselves in you this morning. We pray for the glory and in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm not sure what your households are like. I I do see a number of young families here. That's always a delight to see in a church. But in our household, we have five children. When it comes time for the weekend, uh, in which we allow our children to at times watch uh, movies, uh, we'll often hear... Mom, Dad, can we can we watch a movie? And and because uh, it's you know it's time and that's the that's time for some relaxation, some entertainment perhaps. And it's often closely followed by a second question, and that question is, are there any new movies we can watch? And those of you who are parents who allow your children to watch movies, uh, and and we don't allow our children to watch many movies, uh, you know that there's just not much out there that's good to watch, or even you know. Neutral to watch. There's there's so much in movies these days that are uh, that are rubbish. You're just filling your soul with all sorts of uh, evil things that, that can't but come out, because that's what the Word of God says. And so you know, often can we watch a movie? And you know, is there any movie? Is there anything we haven't watched yet? Right? That that small group of movies that we allow our children to watch. Well, I think as Christian parents, we. We do right to significantly limit what our children take into their lives. And when it comes to violence, to keep them from violent movies, violent video games, violent comic books is just one example of some of the garbage that's out there in the world. But what about violent stories? Have you ever thought about the stories that fill out most? Children's Bible storybooks. We love the story of Daniel in the lion's den. It's found in a lot of children's story books, Bible storybooks. And sometimes there'll be a picture of Daniel there with his, with his hand on a lion and the lion's smiling and everything, you know, it's done up in a cartoon. It looks really nice. But the reality is those lions devoured the other Persian governors and ripped them limb by limb completely devouring them before they even reached the ground. And we love the story of, of Moses at the Red Sea with, with staff upraised triumphantly as the people of Israel crossed through the dry ground to the other side as they aim for Sinai and then the Promised Land. But when that Red Sea came back, it left thousands of Egyptian corpses floating in its watery tomb. And then there's the story of David and Goliath. I don't know if there exists a Bible storybook for children without the story of David and Goliath. It's, it's just a beloved story. We all love the, the idea of the, the little boy. You know, how old was he? Maybe not really little, but we love the story of the, of the young lad, at least, that took down the giant. What a great story. But when you read the story in the Bible, it is a bloody and lurid one. David slings a stone which sinks into the forehead of the giant. He decapitates the Gittite with his own sword. And then presumably, as he promised, he feeds his corpse to the birds. Should we keep violent stories like this from our children? Should we ignore them ourselves? Is is David a, a good example a good Christian example in that story? Or are we allowed to rejoice and get excited when David defeats Goliath and cuts off his head? The Bible is chock full of virus. And one of the challenges for the Christian is what we do with that. What do we do with passages that not only paint People like David as the hero when he slaughters his enemies, but paints God as the hero when he slaughters his. Some of these questions are intrinsically linked with the doctrine of hell. There are many Christians in the 21st century, especially here in the West, who are very uncomfortable with the idea of God's eternal judgment. Sometimes this is expressed in outright denial of the doctrine of hell. Some people believe that those who are punished in hell will only suffer temporarily, and then they'll, they'll cease to exist. They're called annihilationists. Others believe that any suffering in hell, for those who are sent there, will be rehabilitative. And after some time maybe sort of like a purgatory, eventually those people will realize the wrongs of their ways and they eventually will exit hell and enter into heaven thousands or maybe even tens of thousands of years later. Yes, hell will exist, but there won't be anybody in it. Those people are called universalists. I suspect, however, that most Christians, at least those who regularly read their Bibles realize that the scriptures are clear about the eternal punishment of the wicked. And yet, even amongst that segment, many remain uncomfortable with the idea of God inflicting painful torment forever in hellfire upon the wicked. This morning, I want to help you to have joy in the contemplation of the judgment, even, even the eternal judgment of God. Now, as I say that, I, I recognize that that sounds a little strange. And part of our discomfort with hell is actually good. We're told that in this between time prior to, to eternity, to either eternal heaven or eternal hell, that God is seeking the lost. He's not willing that any would perish, that he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. More than that, God actually does much good to the wicked now. And not only to those who have not yet repented, but to those whom he knows will never repent. And he still pours out many blessings upon them. So when we consider joy at judgment, there is an important sense in which this is a deferred joy a joy that may not settle into our souls in quite the same way now as it will in the future. Yet, as we will see in our passage near the end of Isaiah chapter 30, it is a joy nonetheless. So the verses that we're going to consider um, in detail here are verses 27 to 33. Isaiah 30, 27 to 33, that's what we're going to focus on this morning and And just to give you a little bit of context this morning, the prophet Isaiah is speaking for God during the reign of King Hezekiah. Many of you will know that King Hezekiah was one of the good kings of Judah. Uh, In fact, he was one of the, the best kings of Judah. And yet, even during good King Hezekiah's reign, Isaiah found much to speak against in the wider culture. One area of prophetic warning was political reliance upon Egypt by many of the Israelites. Assyria had risen from the northeast as a very strong enemy, and they had already conquered and taken away the northern kingdom of Israel. Because of this, some among Israel, perhaps even some of her leaders, had sought the help of Egypt against God's clear commands. However, in the midst of many warnings at this time and in this chapter, there is also great promises of God's grace and goodness to the people whom he had chosen. For instance, if you look back to verses 18 and 19, it says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem, you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. So even as we spend some considerable time contemplating judgment this morning, I want to hold this out to you at the outset. That God is merciful, and not only merciful, but he, he waits in his mercy, holding out Jesus Christ, his own beloved son that he sent for sinners, for you, to any who would come and take of grace forevermore. There is nothing that God withholds to any who would come to escape wrath, to escape judgment, to escape what they have brought upon themselves for their sins. God waits to be gracious. He, he exalts himself in showing mercy. And so even as we contemplate judgment this morning, if there is any here who have not yet tasted of the mercy, the grace, and the goodness of God, hear the plea. And if God would convict you through this word this morning, then take by faith the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for sinners upon the cross. So, there are promises in this chapter which clearly foreshadow the coming of Christ and his final salvation in a more distant future. But there is an immediate answer to many of the things that are portrayed and prophesied here as well. And many of these things came to pass, especially the passage that we'll be looking at, verses 27 and following, when. Hezekiah and, and, Iz, and, uh, and Judah, Jerusalem, were surrounded by the Assyrians. And King Hezekiah called out for help from God. And God sent out his angel and struck down 185,000 Assyrians in the middle of the night, saving his people. And so this is the situation in the background to the passage that we are considering in verses 27-27. And And as you see here, there is significant imagery that communicates the joy of God's judgment, feasting, singing, gladness of heart. And this morning, I want us to consider three reasons that we can have joy at God's judgment and even in his full and final judgment of hell. The first reason that we can be joyful concerning God's judgment is that it is the defense and vindication of God's people. When verse 27 says, behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke, we should understand at this point that Israel's enemies are already arrayed against her. They've surrounded her. The commander of Assyria's army, the Rabshakeh, has mocked her and mocked God. If you keep a finger here, please turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 18 and verse 32. 2 Kings, chapter 18, verse 32. The Rabshakeh is here speaking to the common folk in Israel, in, in a tongue that they that they know in order to instill fear in them. Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sephravaim and Hena and Ivah? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? So you see the mocking, the derision there of God and his people. Now turn with me to Second Kings nineteen. Just over to the next chapter. And in verse 32, God reassures Hezekiah that he will answer and deliver him. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake, and for the sake of my servant David. So, when we hear in Isaiah 30 of God's fury and wrath and of the smoke of his mouth and the stroke of his staff, when we read about the fire upon which the king of Assyria will be thrown, we understand that God is coming in power and anger not only to punish, but also to save, to rescue his precious people from their foes God is being patient right now with those who afflict his children This morning we we already heard in our time of prayer of a fellow that killed a pastor in India God is being patient with those who afflict his children And in fact as we are patient too Like God, we ought to pray for the repentance and the salvation of this fellow that murdered the pastor. But also, at the same time, we should cry out for the pastor to be vindicated for the blood that was shed. In Revelation chapter 6, Verse 9, we read that John saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, Lord, uh, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. God is being patient, but there is a time in which God's patience will come to an end, and we ought to rejoice in that. Because just as those souls cry out for vindication, so we ought to cry out too. Let me suggest to you this morning that part of our discomfort with God's judgment and with hell comes from dwelling in relative peace here in Canada where we suffer little at the hands of those who oppose God. That may be be changing. It may be that there are times of increased persecution for Christians here in Canada. But there are brothers and sisters all over the world, in India and China and Nigeria and elsewhere, who have had Family members attacked, imprisoned, or killed, as we heard, for their faith in Christ. And I assure you that they are looking forward to God finally coming to deliver, to defend, and to vindicate his children. And there is joy when God finally does show up. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19 and in verse 1 after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out hallelujah (laughs) salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. There is joy in God coming to defend his people. The second reason that we can have joy in God's judgment is because it is that it is the display of God's power and plan. You turn back to our passage in Isaiah 30. Notice with me all the descriptors of God's might and power. Verse 30 states, And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard, and the descending blow of his arm to be seen. In furious anger in a flame of devouring fire, with a cloudburst and storm, and hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. We ought to have joy in the display of God's incomparable power. Now, on one hand, we understand as Christians that God is sovereign, he's, he's creator and ruler of all, which means that he can never be truly opposed or thwarted. Even the devil himself is a created being and not in the least God's equal. As an aside, hell will not be the devil's playground or or kingdom. It will be a place where he is tormented forever. And yet, in spite of this truth, we must also recognize that God does have enemies. When God rescued Israel from Egypt, the ten plagues were a a contest between the Lord and the gods of Egypt. When God brought Israel into the promised land, the conquest of Canaan was a war between God and the Canaanite deities. When Jesus came to the earth, his mission included binding the strong man and plundering his kingdom. And so we ought as Christians to take delight in the display of the power of God over his enemies. We see this delight in the song of Moses if you turn with me to Exodus 15. Exodus in chapter 15. Now remember this isn't just the, the children's bible storybook with, you know, Moses with arm upraised, staff upraised and everybody's, you know, triumphantly marching through on dry ground. This is also Pharaoh's army deluged, floating in that that sea. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father is God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. They they sung in praise of God's power, displayed in the destruction of God's enemies. I don't know how many of you, when you were young, in discussions with other children, had conversations where you would compare the power of, or the strength of your father with others, but I I did that. Because you see, when you're little, you see your dad doing, you know, big things, things that require a lot of strength. And you think to yourself, "My, my my dad's the strongest guy in the world. That's all, that's what you know. And so when, you know, when you get, to talking with another child who's bragging about his dad, then it quickly escalates. My, oh, my dad's stronger than your dad. Did you ever say that to another child? I know I did. But why do we have that, that desire to praise the power of our heroes? Well, it's because God has put into our heart the desire to praise his power and his strength. Of course, we do this all the time in the in the stories that we read, in the movies that we watch. There might be people that would say, okay, you know, Paul, I I understand that, yes, we we like to see you know we like to see heroes do great things. That's that's fine and good, but but you're talking now, you're applying this even to To hell, where there's people that are going to be tormented forever. Surely only a a monster would praise power when it meant the suffering of another. Well, let me suggest that all evidence is to the contrary. Millions of dollars are spent every year at the box office as moviegoers pack the theaters to see their favorite superheroes overcome evil villains. Marvel and their parent company, Disney, have been extremely successful in this, releasing five of the top 12 grossing movies of all time within the last number of years. And while, you know, the modern technologies allow this fantastic storytelling to be done in a you know in a way that that awes us in particular really they're just special effects retelling of the ancient epics in which demigods and superhumans battled to the death deaths often grim and gruesome whether it's Hector versus Achilles whether it's Captain America versus the Red Skull or whether it's David versus Goliath The success of these stories bear witness that man has an intrinsic desire to see the power of his heroes tested and vindicated. And so, although we may not rejoice particularly in someone's death, destruction, torment, or affliction, we ought to and will eternally rejoice at the display of God's power in the destruction of all his enemies forever in hell Hell will be a monument to God's power. Hell will also be a monument to God's plan. Note that our passage states that in verse 33, a burning place has long been prepared. Think about that. A burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king, it is made ready. This wasn't plan B. And this is an important but often overlooked aspect of judgment. It may seem convenient and helpful to state that the only reason that every anyone will ever be condemned is on account of their own free will. And indeed, God has done everything he can in order to provide a way of escape. He has sent not only prophet after prophet to warn, but also his own son, to die in order that salvation be offered freely to all. And then he he appoints and sends ministers to take the gospel. Human free will is an important aspect of why people will suffer eternally in hell. It is not wrong to say that hell will be populated by people that have freely chosen to be there. But here's the problem. Here's why that can't explain everything that needs to be said about hell. There are people that hate God and spite Him and deliberately want to frustrate God's plans forever. Forever. So here's the question Are they successful? Are God's enemies fully and finally successful successful in frustrating God's plans forever to save them? Will God pine and lament over them forever like like a jilted lover? Is God forever defeated by these rebels? Will God fail to accomplish what seems like one of the most important things possible? which is the salvation of lost souls. But the scriptures are clear here and in other places like Romans 9 and in 1 Peter and in 2 Peter that God has in fact destined them to stumble and fall. As it says in 1 Peter 2.8, the wicked may think that they have turned the tables on God and at least have some kind of victory. But in the end, they will discover that their wills are subservient to God's and that they have not won a battle of wills, but have lost and will be destroyed in that knowledge forever. A place has been prepared. And we ought to rejoice. We ought to rejoice that God's power and plans... Will never fail. Because here's the thing. If God's plans are capable of failing. Then you have no certainty in your salvation. Let me say that again. If God's plans are capable of failing. You have no certainty in your salvation. Because if evil men can forever thwart God. Then what confidence do you have That Satan cannot. What confidence do you have. If God's plans can be frustrated forever. That when you sit before the judgment. And you come up to that seat. That it is not God on the throne. But Satan. But your confidence is in the fact. That God is sovereign in all things. Those who have their own free will. In the end, aim for hell will find it, and they will find that it was also the will of God. Lastly, this morning, I want us to consider the the joy that we can have in the Father's vindication of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, ultimately, we know that, that all scriptures, including the Old Testament, are fulfilled in Christ. And there are several verses here in Isaiah that that very specifically foreshadow Christ. As one example, in verse 20, we read that there is a day coming in which Israel would see her teacher. A day that's better than the the days that that they were living in, in which, you know, Isaiah was sent and the prophets were sent and, and they wouldn't listen. But there was a day coming when they would see and hear their teacher in a full and final way. But there's good reason here to believe that in this later section in Isaiah 30, there's also a foreshadowing of Christ. Note that much of the language about the power and the weaponry of God is connected to his mouth and voice. In verse 27, his lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring stream. In verse 28, his breath is like an overflowing stream. In verse 30, he will cause his majestic voice to be heard. In verse 31, the Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. I want you to turn with me now back to Revelation 19. Revelation chapter 19. And in verse 11, we see here the victorious return of our Lord. And I want you to understand that this is not only, not only a victory, but a vindication. Because though he is Lord of Lords, he was put to death by Rome. That ought to cause a sense of injustice to come bubbling up. Though he is King of Kings, Israel rejected his rule. Though he is the source of life, he was put to death. Though he is holy and true, he was condemned like a criminal. Though he came from heaven, he suffered the pains of the punishment of hell and his crucifixion. And so, those who have invested themselves in this Lord, I trust you this morning, our Savior Jesus Christ, you ought to rejoice when you read about his triumphant return and his vindication. This is Jesus winning! Because when he came the first time, it didn't look like it. Then I saw heaven open, verse 11. And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. of lords. He's called the word of God. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. His eyes are a flame of fire. And this passage goes on to speak of the slaughter of the son's enemies and how he will feed their flesh to the birds just like David promised that he would do to Goliath. And Jesus told a parable in Luke 19 which foretold these events. And this is helpful, I think, because you might approach the book of Revelation and go, yeah, yeah, but you know, there's a a lot of imagery here in the book of Revelation. Yeah, there is. There's, There's a lot of symbolism here in the book of Revelation. Yes, to be sure. But Jesus says exactly the same thing when he spoke by means of parable to those listening when he walked the earth. Luke 19, 12, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And then jumping down to verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. God the Father will not let his beloved son's fame and glory his rule and majesty go trampled, hated, and despised forever. With joy, the Father will give to his Son all of his enemies, and he will destroy them forever in hell. Just as God states in Isaiah 30, verse 33, that the breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles the burning place long prepared, so too Jesus says in Luke 12. Verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. We don't don't read that passage maybe quite as much as, as the one of, you know, Jesus came to to give his life as a ransom for many, right? And in response to the, to the question, why did Jesus come? And I'm not suggesting we reverse that. God's grace and his mercy are, are foremost as he holds that out to people that are already condemned in their sins. John chapter three. But if you asked, why did Jesus come? You would not be wrong in saying, Jesus came to cast fire to the earth And were that it were already kindled. I wish in a certain sense Jesus was saying the judgment would already come. And and largely because the judgment was going to fall on him first. I have a baptism to be baptized with. He's speaking of, of heading to the cross. As the John Newton song said earlier to quench hell's flames with his own blood. And so Jesus suffered the punishment of hell as an atoning sacrifice for sin. But he will punish with hell those who despise and reject him and his salvation. And we ought to rejoice in that. We ought to rejoice in that. Indeed, you ought to be distressed with Christ until it is accomplished. If Jesus is distressed until all things are put to right, including the judgment of God's enemies, so too you should be distressed until Jesus is vindicated. To those who cling to Christ in trust, he will grant the blessings of his heaven. Those, however, who have rejected his overtures of grace and kindness, who have hated him and put him to death, he will send to the fiery prison of hell, where they will suffer forever as a testimony to the glory of the Son of God. And so I ask you this morning, does your heart rejoice as at a feast in the contemplation of God's judgment? we're going to we're going to go and not too long and and we're going to partake of food together and and just as a as brother Joshua was saying there's there's great joy not only in a normal feast but but when we come back together and share when we haven't done so for for some time there's there's joy in food that's why it's used in our passage in Isaiah 30 for joy as as a symbol is there joy in your heart as you contemplate Christ returning to put all of his enemies under his feet Is there joy that God will one day save you from your enemies? Do you have enemies? Maybe that's a question we ought to ask. Are there people that that don't like us and say nasty things about us because we act righteously in a wicked world, we hold out the gospel of Jesus Christ and and try to win people to him by our, our proclamation of the gospel? Again, maybe part of the problem we don't see the good in judgment is that we're not doing what we should be doing here in this earth. Is there joy that God will one day save you from your enemies? Is there joy that God will one day fully display his power as our great hero and deliverer? Is there joy in contemplation? Of the fact that God's plans will not fail. Even in the face of enemies who reject his grace. And is there joy in the fact that the father will one day send his son to reclaim his rightful fame and majesty. Although we live and labor in a time in which God's mercy is held out to all. Yet we can at the same time, indeed, you must at the same time, be able to rejoice and say hallelujah for judgment. And even for hell. I want to close by reading from Psalm 96. You can turn there with me to read with me. Psalm 96 And I'll finish reading from verses 10 to 13. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth Rejoice, let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Let's pray. O Holy God, we thank you that you have judged our sins in your Holy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who though he knew no sin, he became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we thank you that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those, Lord, this morning that may not know Christ. His mercy, his grace, the forgiveness that is in him. Father, I pray that you would convict them by sending your Holy Spirit. That, Lord, you might salt them with fire now. That you might not punish them in fire forevermore. And, Lord, I pray for those... have come to believe in christ that they might rejoice in every aspect of who he is and what he has done and what will do we say come lord jesus come make right this this sinful and wicked world bring us your salvation and deliverance Take your throne and begin to reign in a visible way. For your name's sake and glory, we pray. Amen.